Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland. We take timeless biblical truth and help you to apply it in the context of your daily life. If you'd like to join us live at one of our campuses or stream one of our services online, go to peavine.org for times, locations, and more information. Twenty twenty is over. Thank you, Jesus. Can I get a witness? Hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. Somebody said, though, don't read 2021 like 2020 W-O-N. Please don't read it like that, right? I don't want to carry it over into the new year. I'm so glad to be here with you today. And uh, Joel's not here. I want to say to him, if he's watching online or whenever he sees this, Thank you for inviting me back, Joel, in your absence. I'm so glad. I always feel like I'm coming back to being with family here at Peavine, and, uh, and today's no different, so thank you so much. We're going to start the new year together. Now, really, your pastor last week kind of kicked off the new year with last week's kind of post-Christmas message, kind of looking out into the new year. If you missed that last week, the essence of it was that we need to really make sure that we make much of Jesus in 2021. As a matter of fact, he took it so far to say you need to get around people in 2021 who are making much of Jesus in 2021. Last week's message was fantastic. So I want you to grab your Bible, your iPad, your iPod, your Android, your Windows mobile device, whatever you got. Turn to Ephesians chapter uh, 3, and I'm going to try to basically extend that concept just a little bit, but maybe in a unique way. Uh, If you're New here to Peavine, I want you to know you're in a great place. This is a rare and precious church. Uh, if you're a regular at Peavine and you've been here a long time, I want to encourage you, don't take your church for granted. This is a very special place. One of the things I appreciate about, uh, about this church is that uh, you will always come, uh, whenever you come to church here, you're going to hear what the Bible says. Uh, your pastor and your leaders, they stand on the Word of God. If there's anything we need in our day and generation, it's people who won't back up, back down, who won't water down the Word of God. Can I get a witness? That's so important. We need that. I don't want to know what man thinks. I don't know what God thinks. And there's enough guys out there that are standing in pulpits that are preaching motivational messages that just barely even give a nod to Scripture. You're going to hear the Bible when you come here. Now, when a guy like me comes in, or Johnny Hunt, Lord knows you need to be here next week to hear Johnny Hunt. Somebody like us come in and, and we're preaching. We, we, we love it because we get a lot of freedom just to preach the Word. We, I don't know about you, but when I hear preaching, I don't want them to water it down. I don't want to go into a church that wants me to water it down. It kind of reminds me of the story I heard about Bob and Frank. Bob and Frank were brothers. They were older bachelors. They still lived at home with Mama. They just had never gotten married. They liked Mama's cooking in their own bed and staying at home. And so Bob, though, it was a bad economy. He had to find whatever job he could find, and he found a job that was going to require him to travel and uh, he hated it because he was just he was just that homebody type well he wasn't gone the first night on this brand new job and he called home to check on things he was a nervous wreck Frank answered the phone hello Bob said Frank it's Bob I, I tell you I never should have taken this job the money's not worth it I can't stand being away from home Frank's like, yeah, Bob, you've always been like that. He said, I know, man, it's just killing me, man. I'm quitting today. I'm coming home. How's the house? How are you? How's my, how's, how's my cat? Is my cat okay? He goes, well, actually, your cat's dead. He said, what? He said, your cat's dead. Oh, man, I knew something would happen if I ever took a job like this. Got, a, got away from home. Leave home. It's an omen. I'm telling you, my cat died. That's horrible. And Frank, I can't believe you. 
Frank's like, what do you mean you can't believe me? I didn't kill your cat. I just woke up this morning. He's dead. Frank, I know. But listen, you, you, you don't listen. You know what a nervous wreck I am. You know how homesick I am. My cat's died and all you just got to, you just come out and just say your cat's dead. You don't do that, Frank. He goes, what? He goes, you don't, do, you don't just come out and say a, man, a man's cat's died. He goes, well, how am I supposed to say it? There's either dead or not, and he is. That's the only way I know. He's like, he's like no, 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 you, you need to break it to me gently. You got to break it gently. He goes, how would you break that gently? He said, well, for instance, you, you could say your cat's on the roof right now, and we can't get him down, but we've called the fire department, and they're on their way. And so call back in a little while, and I'll give you an update. And then I could have called back in a little while and you could have said, well, the fire department got here, but they spooked your cat and he jumped off the roof and he hit the ground hard, but he's alive, but we got him on the pet ambulance. He's on his way down to the veterinary clinic. Just call back in a while. I'll give you an update. And then I could have called back in a while and you could have said, your cat's in surgery right now, but he's under the finest veterinary hands in the county. And we got him on the prayer chain down at the church. Everybody's praying, believing God. And, but, but, but anything could happen, so be ready for anything. Just call back a little while. I'll give you an update. And then I could have called back in a little while, and you could have said, your cat's no longer with us. He didn't make it through surgery. I'm so sorry. And I could have been braced for the bad news. Do you understand how this works? I'm already a wreck, and you just say your cat's dead. Come on, Frank. Just think about it. Frank's like, I got it. I understand. Okay. Bob says, anyway, how's mom? Frank says, well, she's on the roof right now. fire department's on the way. So, so can I just shoot straight this morning? Is that okay? We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to dive into a few verses, and I'm going to be as gun barrel straight as I can and tell you like it is. I want you to look at verse 14 as Paul is writing, and he's praying, and we see very quickly that he's praying, and what he's praying for the Ephesian believers. Now watch what he says, verse 14, chapter 3, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that what? Well, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Well, that's good. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Watch that. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, that's really where I want to camp this morning, that one line, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, I'm going to shoot straight, and I'm going to be really honest, not politically correct, not even uh, uh, easy to hear for some, but I'm just going to tell you it like it is. He said, I want Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith. There's only two kinds of people in the world. There are only two kinds of people in America. There are only two kinds of people in Georgia. There are only two kinds of people in your home, in your workplace. There are only two kinds of people in this building this morning. There's only two kinds of people, and it's not a Republican and Democrat. There are only two kinds of people, and it's not upper class and lower class. There are only two kinds of people, and it's not black or white. It's only two kinds of people. It's not male and female. There are only two kinds of people in the world, and it's in the most important area to discern. There are only two kinds of people, those that have Jesus in their heart and those that don't have Jesus in their heart. There are only two kinds of people, those that are on their way to heaven and there are those that are on their way to hell. There are only two kinds of people. There are those that have said yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord and those that for whatever reason have not said yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord. I've been saying it for years. Being saved is kind of like being pregnant. Either you are or you ain't. <laughs> and so, so if you're here this morning and Jesus is not in your heart by faith, 
If Jesus Christ, and you cannot say like you know your name, that Christ has saved you, that Christ has washed away your sins, that Christ is your King, Savior, and Lord, then friend, listen, here at the beginning of this new year, your number one problem is not the fact that your spouse is threatening divorce. If Christ is not in your heart, your number one problem is not that thing in your body that that is wrong that your doctor can't pinpoint yet. Whatever your issue is, it, 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 what, it, your number one problem in your life this, right now is not that problem that you have on your job or the fact that your income is drying up or, or the fact that your car is in the shop again. Whatever issue. Now listen, I sympathize with those things. Those are real problems. And believe me, I, I, I think those ought to be given attention to. But hear me, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, those are not your biggest problem. The biggest problem, if Jesus is not in your heart, is a problem that we're all born with that will separate us from God, that will will take us to hell forever it is a problem you're not going to hear discussed on oprah winfrey or in mtv or out in the news on cnn nobody's going to talk about it probably outside a building like this but it is the number one problem we all have it is a problem known as sin sin is a problem and the bible says that all have sin now the greek word for all means everybody (laughs) right we're all, we're, all, we're all sinners. Now, all, all of us is, all have sin, Romans 3.23, and come short of the glory of God. Now, as soon as somebody says that, we start having debates in our head, and we're like, well, I'm not as bad as that guy, and I hadn't done what a lot of folks have done. Let me ask you a question this morning. Let's just be honest. Nobody here but us. How, how many of you have ever told a lie before in your life? Raise your hand. Some of you lying right now. Get your hand up. How many of you have ever stolen something before? Stolen anything? Come on, even, even something intangible, like answers off the guy's test next to you in class, right? Okay, look at us. Here we are, Sunday morning crowd, bunch of liars and thieves. I mean, that's who we are, right? Hey, but you know what? You don't have to have that example. You don't have to have a, t- a preacher tell you or remind you you're a sinner. Your mama doesn't have to remind you. Your spouse doesn't have to remind you. I promise you this, we'll be reminding our own selves, Right? In the average day that we are sitting, one time this lady's praying, she's like, Lord, so far today I've not been unkind, so far today I've not gossiped, so far today I've not been jealous or been mean to anybody, so far today, Lord, I'm doing pretty good. But in a couple of minutes, I'm going to be getting out of bed and I need your help, (laughs) right? I mean, you don't have to go far into an average day to know we are sinners. Now, Now, here's what we misunderstand about sin. Here's the thing. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. In other words, what the Bible teaches is sin is not just in what we do. Sin is in who we are. Therefore, it's in what we do. See, as soon as the sperm hit the egg and you became a living soul, you were the possessor of a sinful nature with a bit away from God, away from holy things, away from righteousness, toward yourself, inherited from Adam and Eve, the very first man and woman that had ever sinned. The fact is, we're all sinners. And we say, yeah, but you know, children are so innocent. I, I, I'll, never forget, I'll never forget when my daughter was born. And she's 21 now, and she's delivered my first grandchild uh, in 2020, which has really redeemed the whole year. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, but I remember when she was born, it was like yesterday. And we were at that midwife clinic, and, and man, we had that 22-hour labor, and, and it, was, it, was the, it, was, it was the hardest work I've ever done in my life, delivering that baby. And, and, and I, I mean, and uh, coaching my wife. And, uh, and, and I remember when she was born, I remember when that innocent little baby was born. I, I remember when that sweet little baby was born. I remember when that precious little baby 
was born. And what did we do? We, we cleaned her up real good and we waited for that purple to fade. And, and, then, and, then, and then she got to looking halfway normal. They said, you can take her home. And we took that home, baby home, that precious baby, that innocent baby, that sweet little baby. And, and we had no idea that within two weeks she'd be demon, demon possessed. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> we found out as parents real quick what every parent finds out. And that is we are about to spend the next however many years of our life teaching our child to be good because she was born bad, not the other way around. We are the possessors of a sinful nature, even from birth, David said, in sin my mother conceived me. I mean, even from the beginning, we, 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 are, we are sinners. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the consequence of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, 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 the wages of sin is death. Here's what I've noticed about every sin I've ever committed and every person I've ever counseled whose life is wrecked by sin. Sin don't look like death, does it? Sin don't feel like death, does it? Not at first. Sin don't smell like death. Sin don't taste like death. It reminds me uh, of, of years ago I heard how, how Eskimos capture wolves in Alaska. They don't actually go wolf hunting when they want to go kill a wolf. Here's what an Eskimo would do when they wanted to capture a wolf in Alaska. They would take a big knife, not a little knife, big knife, like Crocodile Dundee, that's not a knife, this is a knife, knives, big knife, and dip that knife into some deer's blood. And then they would take that knife, that blade, covered in blood, out in the snow, and they'd let it freeze on that knife. Then when that layer was frozen, they'd take it back inside, dip it again out in the snow, let it freeze. Back inside, dip it again, out in the snow, let it freeze. Back inside, dip it again, out in the snow, let it freeze. Till eventually they had essentially a blood popsicle. Now, they knew that the wolf they wanted to capture can smell blood up to four miles away. So they would take that blood popsicle frozen there on that night, and they would jam that handle down in the snow and the dirt, and they'd just wait. Sooner or later, their prey would catch scent of that knife and that wolf would come now what would that wolf do when he found that knife blade covered in blood in the snow well he'd do what any wolf would do that you would anticipate he he would begin to lick and he would lick and he would lick and he would lick they have an insatiable appetite for blood he would lick and lick until one layer was gone two layers were gone four layers were gone all the layers are gone and eventually the soft tongue of that wolf would slide across the edge of that blade. Now, he wouldn't even notice that his tongue was cut. All he knew, knew is that he was still tasting blood. And he would continue to lick until literally he would drink himself to death in the snow. How, how many times have we seen sin work just like that? In our lives. How many times have we seen sin work like that in the lives of people that we love? It, it, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like they drank their business to death. They drank, drank their marriage to death. They drank their testimony to death. They drank their conscience to death. And it's like, man, do you see what you're doing to yourself? How many times have we said, why did I even do that? And that's how it works. Sin doesn't look like death. It doesn't taste like death. It doesn't feel like death. But the wages of sin is death. The consequence of sin is always death. But here's the thing that I noticed in the Word of God. Not only is death the consequence of sin, death is also the cost of sin. Now, you're tracking ahead of me, and you know that God loves us enough that He took care of the sin problem when He gave His Son on the cross. But here's what's interesting. We've already heard it quoted this morning, and we even sang it 
The fact of the matter is, God said, yeah, I want to deal with the sin problem, but listen, the sin problem can't be dealt with unless somebody dies. Why? Because death is not just the consequence of sin. Death is the cost of sin. In order for your sin to be covered, somebody has to die. The Old Testament said, without the shedding of blood, there's no removal of sin. See, see there, there are some attributes of God. There's some things about God that, the, that even the culture understands. And then there are some things about him that they don't understand. So what do you mean, Scott? What I mean is like this. If we were to, if we were to poll the culture, e- even those that don't go to church, just, I mean, just ask the question like, is God good? Do you believe in God? And if they believe in God, say, is God a good God? Yeah, God, God, God's a good God. God's a loving God. I believe in a loving God. My God is a loving God. They'll say things like that. Even the Oprah Winfrey crowd and all them, they're, they're like, they're like, yeah, God, God, there is a God and he's, he's good and he's, he's a loving God. Now, the, now the, the interesting thing about that is the Bible does verify that that is true. The Bible says God is love. God is a loving God. But so the misunderstanding naturally follows that, well, if God's a loving God, yeah, my sin's wrong, bad stuff, right? I have a conscience. I know how to cross it. So I understand that, that, that I've done bad things. And God understands that because he's God. But God loves me so much that he's just going to kind of overlook my sin and forgive me and just take me on into heaven because I'm generally a good person and the bad stuff he'll just kind of overlook. And I mean, he loves me, right? God's a God of love. Yes. It's true that he's a God of love, but that's not how it works. Why? Because God can't just overlook your sin and let you into heaven. He can't just overlook my sin and let me into heaven because there's another aspect of who he is. Love is not all that he is. God is also, let me give you some other words. God is holy. God is a God of, here it is, related to his holiness, justice. God is a God of justice. Now, what is justice? A justice is this. If a criminal does a crime, he's got to do the time. If somebody does wrong, it is right if they pay for their wrong. And if they do wrong and don't have to pay for their wrong, something's wrong, right? I mean, if, you, if you're watching a, a nationally televised court case, and, and, and you know that guy is guilty, and you've heard all the evidence, but somehow the system is manipulated to where he gets off scot-free. It's almost like a switch flips inside your soul, and something says, wait a minute, that's not right, that's not okay. You know what that is? That is the residue of the image of God inside of you and me, that sense of justice that is planted inside of us alongside our conscience. That if something is done, has been done wrong, that they ought to pay or have retribution over that wrong. Now, God is a God of justice. What does that mean? That means by his own person and power, he is bound by his own character to make sure and enforce that every wrong that's ever been committed comes to justice, that justice is affected upon every sin and every wrong. And because he is the ultimate measure of righteousness, holiness in him is infinite. Every sin is ultimately against God. David said, against you alone have I sinned. God will make sure that every sin will be punished. But, but, but wait a minute. He's just as much a God of love as he is a God of justice. He's just as much a God of justice as he is a God of love. God's in a dilemma. How can God express his love without violating his justice? And how can God express his justice and punish every sin without violating his love? Here's what God did. 2,000 years ago, he lived on this earth, enrobed himself in human flesh, lived a sinless life in what we call the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
At the end of his life, he got up on a cross. Now, he was brought in on trumped-up charges by the Pharisees, turned over for Roman execution, but he said himself, no man takes my life from me. As a matter of fact, he could have called 10,000 angels to take him off the cross, but he did not. He said, I lay it down of my own accord. Why? Because he didn't go up on the cross as a martyr, as a great teacher, even as a moral example. He went up on that cross as the prophesied, sinless, perfect Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Here's what sets Christianity apart from everything every other religious belief system, when you see the cross of Jesus, here's what you're seeing. You're seeing that while God's justice demanded a sacrifice for sin, in his love, he became the sacrifice for sin to satisfy his justice. So when you see Jesus dying on the cross of Calvary, you see his love expressed without violating his justice and his justice satisfied without violating his love. That is why Jesus Christ is not the main way or a better way or the best way. He's the only way to get to God. Amen. Amen. That is why this is so important. Is Jesus in your heart? Do you understand that the cost of sin is death and the consequence of sin is death? And Jesus died our death one night. One night a a pastor's daughter couldn't sleep. She was about 10 years old. She couldn't sleep. She was scared out of her mind. She called her daddy. And daddy, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. He said, why not? Why why can't you sleep, bunny? She said, well, you know that deacon that died? They they said he died in his sleep. They they said he died in his sleep. We're praying for his family. They said he died in in his sleep. They said he went to sleep and he didn't wake up. He's dead now. And he said, yes, honey, but but he's a lot older than you. And, and you know what? He's, he's with Jesus now. And I'm sure he wouldn't want to come back here. She said, she said, Daddy, I understand about Jesus. I understand about he, how he's in heaven. But I'm afraid I might die in my sleep. People die in their sleep sometimes. He goes, honey, but, but you remember last year you, you gave your heart to Jesus. And if, if, you, if you went to sleep and you died, you'd wake up and be with Jesus. She said, yes, but, but I'm afraid of death. I don't know if death hurts on the way to Jesus. I don't know what death can do to me before I get to Jesus. He said, honey, you don't have to worry about that. She said, Daddy, I just don't understand. He said, honey, listen, you know, sometime we're on the road together, we're driving on the interstate and there's these big old Mack trucks, these big old 18 wheeler transfer trucks. She's like, yeah, daddy, I know the trucks you're talking about. He goes, let me ask you a question, honey. If you were going to get run over, would you rather get run over by the truck or would you rather get run over by the shadow of the truck? She said, daddy, that's easy. I'd much rather get run over by the shadow than the truck. He said, honey, you don't have to be afraid of death because 2,000 years ago, Jesus got run over by the truck, so you'd only get run over by the shadow of the truck. Amen. (laughs) Folks, I'm glad to know that no matter what happens in 2021, that the most death can do to me is a shadow compared to what Jesus did on the cross when he took all of death and all of sin and all of hell for you and me. Amen. God's love, God's justice in Calvary, Jesus paid it all, and all to him we Oh, and he can wash your sins as white as snow. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Now, everything I just said is true. And everything I just said ought to be preached. And for some of you in here and some of you online, it applies to you. And I would say that before you leave today or before you tune us out or before you end this day or this time, would you give your heart to Jesus? But here's what I need to say, and you need to know up front, especially in this sermon, that everything that I just said, as true as it is, is not what Paul was talking about right here. (laughs) You're like, well, that was kind of a long segue there, brother. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but, 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 but wait a minute. Paul is writing, I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, here's what caught me off guard when I studied the passage. He's writing to the Ephesian church. He's writing to 
believers. He's writing this letter to save people. He's writing this to people who had asked Jesus in their hearts. So the question came to my mind in my study. It's this. Why would Paul write to people who've asked Jesus into their heart and say, I'm praying that Christ would be in your heart? Baffled, I dug deeper. And I finally got the answer. The meaning of the entire text is unlocked with the understanding of one key word in this sentence. And that word is dwell. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's what I found out. The Greek word that Paul used that's translated dwell doesn't just mean to live inside. It means to live throughout. And here's the principle. Especially for 2021. Let's think about it. Here it is. It's that it's one thing for Jesus to live in your heart. It is another thing for Jesus to live throughout your heart. It is one thing for Christ to have your heart as his home. It is another thing for Christ to be at home in your heart. I remember one time I was preaching a revival at a church in West Memphis, Arkansas, and somebody came up to me after a service and handed me a little tract and said, Scott, I want you to read this when you get back to your hotel room. And so I sat on the end of my hotel bed that night, and I opened up this little tract by Robert Boyd Munger, who was a professor of theology at Fuller Theological Seminary at the time, and the title of it was My Heart, Christ's Home. Now, when I first read this tract, it read like a test, just any other testimony. It started out like, you know, one day I asked Jesus into my heart. I'm so glad I did. Best day of my life. I'll never regret it. I mean, that kind of language. But when I got to paragraph two, that's when it really began to shift. In the next paragraph, it said something like this. In this newfound relationship with Jesus, I said, Lord, I want you to settle yourself down and make yourself at home here. And Jesus said, great. Then why don't you show me around? So I began to show Jesus around the various rooms of the home of my heart. The first room was the study. The study is the room of the mind. It's a small room with really thick walls, <laughs> but it's an important room. It's like the control room of the whole house. I took Jesus into the study, and as I followed his gaze around the room, I grew embarrassed. There were some books on the bookshelves that a Christian had no business reading. There were some magazines on the table that his eyes were too pure to behold. He looked at my computer on the desk as if he saw right through it and every website it had ever visited. Some of the pictures on the walls were downright shameful. The pictures on the walls of the study are the thoughts and the imaginations of the heart. I said, Lord, I know this room isn't what it ought to be. Can you help me make it over? He said, I'm glad to help. I said, well, what do I do? He said, first of all, take everything out that's not good, true, right, noble, lovely, pure, excellent, admirable, Philippians 4, 8, anything that doesn't draw you closer to me, and get rid of it all. And take and place on those empty shelves things that will cause you to think of me, things that will teach you my ways, things that will draw your thoughts to me. I said, well, what about the pictures on the walls? They've been there so long, and I can barely pry them off. It seems out of control. He said, I've got the thing that'll help. And then Jesus brought out a life-sized portrait of himself. 
And he said, hang this centrally on the wall of your mind and focus your attention there and see what happens. And then I found that as my thoughts were drawn to him and my thoughts focused on him, it was his purity and his power that caused the impure thoughts to back away. So Jesus took charge of the study that day. The next room was the dining room. The dining room is the room of appetites, and desires. I spent a lot of time in this room trying to satisfy my own wants, my own pleasures, my own goals. Jesus came into the room. He said, what's on the menu for dinner? I said, you're going to love it. We got a big old fat 401k and a brand new house coming down the pike. Hopefully get a new car this year. Oh, by the way, likes on Instagram like you wouldn't believe and all the social media shares, comment. Man, I'm telling you, I'm really popular over there. Oh, oh, I'm trying to get another degree or two and I want to make sure that I'm approved more down here and get a lot of popularity with that particular group. I'm telling you, these are the things that I thought would satisfy. And I spent a lot of time in this room orienting my life around meeting those desires. Well, when the food was served, Jesus didn't say anything, but I noticed he didn't eat. I I said, Lord, you you don't like this food? He said, I have food that you know not of. Food that really satisfies. If you really want to be satisfied and have that joy and happiness, he said, stop seeking to do your own plans and your own pleasures. Instead, seek to do the will of the Father. That alone is the food that satisfies. Right there at the table, Jesus gave me a morsel of what it is to do the will of God. And I'm telling you what flavor, there's no food like it in all the world. I I was reminded of what 1 John says, that the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, these things are of the world, not of the Father. And the world is passing away. But then he says this, but he who does the will of the Father abides forever. What's going to happen in 2021 in the dining room? of your life. Jesus took charge of the dining room that day. The next room I took Jesus into, I could tell as soon as I took Jesus in that it was going to be probably his favorite room. And it was. It was the living room. The living room was fantastic. It was secluded. It was quiet. It had a fireplace. It had a really comfortable furniture. And when I took Jesus in there, Jesus said, this is great. I love this room. He said, this is the perfect room for us to begin our days together before you get started. A, a, a place that we can spend time together and have fellowship. Well, well, it was like a light bulb came on. In my new relationship with Jesus, this had not really occurred to me. This idea that Christ wants to fellowship with me. So sure enough, every day before I'd start my day, I'd go into the living room. And Jesus would have a fire going on the fireplace. He'd have a book of the Bible pulled off the shelf and opened. Man, we fellowship together. We, we sang together. He, he would talk about my, some directions for the day. He'd help me solve problems in my life. He'd give me, he, he would reflect on my identity in Christ and who I, what I had in him. He would tell me, he would reveal mysteries that I had no concept of before. These were sweet times. Fellowshipping with Jesus. But as life goes, urgent responsibilities started crowding in. Things were just demanding my attention. I started shortening those times sometimes. Occasionally I'd miss a day or two. Sometimes skipping days, even weeks. One day I was on my way out to start my day and I passed that living room door 
and it was cracked just a little, and I could see flickering. I stopped outside that door, and I thought, what kind of a host am I? I've invited Jesus into the home of my heart, but I'm neglecting him? I just wonder. So I spun around, and I opened that living room door, and I walked inside. Red-faced, I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've, I've, I've been neglecting you, but I've got a question. I see the fire in the fireplace. I, I see the Bible open on the sofa. And here you are. Have, have you been here all these mornings that I've missed? He said, I've never missed one. He said, remember, I paid a great personal cost to even have this relationship with you. He said, if you're not going to keep the quiet time for your sake, will you at least keep it for my sake? This whole idea that Jesus wants to have fellowship with us, you could even say craves to have that intimacy with us, has done more to transform my quiet time than any other single fact. In 2021, don't leave Jesus sitting alone in the living room of your heart. Find time every day where you can spend time with Jesus, because I promise you this, He wants to spend time with you. Jesus asked me if there was a workroom. I I said, well, there's not a workroom. There's a workbench out in the garage of the home of my heart. I was a little embarrassed to take Jesus out there. I mean, the workbench, right? supposed to be productive. There wasn't a lot produced. He looked over the little workbench that I had and a few of the tools that I had laying around and some trinkets that I'd been working on. He said, is this what you've been producing for the kingdom of God? I said, well, it's the best I can do. He said, well, would you like to do better? Would you like to do more? I said, well, of of course, but but I'm I'm not highly skilled. I don't have a lot of talent. I don't have a lot of training. I mean, there's only so much I can do. He said, you make it sound like it all depends on you. He said, what you need to understand is you are not the master workman and we're not intended to be. The Holy Spirit inside of you is the one who produces. I'm not interested in seeing what you can produce. I'm interested in seeing what you'll let the Holy Spirit produce through you. As Jesus explained this to me, He walked around behind me. He put his big, strong hands under mine. He took those tools into his own skilled fingers. And it was like he began to weave through my life from that workbench, almost like a virtual factory he created. as he began to produce through me what I've never could have produced on my own. And the more I trusted, and the more I rested, and the more I leaned and let him, the more he produced through my life. Yes, in 2021, there'll be a call, there'll be a task, there'll be something God gives you to do, to undertake, and it feels bigger than you. Here's the truth, it is. But he doesn't want to see if you can accomplish it or even attempt it. He wants to see if you'll let him accomplish and attempt it through you. Let the Holy Spirit of God be the master workman in the workroom of your life. Well, I thought we were done. But then one day, Jesus met me at the door with an arresting look in his eye. I said, is something wrong, Jesus? He said, there's a smell, a stench coming from the second story. 
I knew what he was talking about. At the end of the landing on the second floor, there was a four-by-four hall closet. And in that hall closet, there were some dead, rotting leftovers from my old life. They were secret. I'd never told anyone they were there. Sometimes I wouldn't even admit to myself that they were there. But they were there, and I knew it. And now everyone was going to know it, because that stench had never been stronger. As I followed Jesus up the stairs, the stronger that smell got. To finally we reached the end of the landing, we were standing outside the door of that closet when Jesus pointed his finger at the closet, and then he held out his hand for the key. And I was mad. I was annoyed. Yeah, because, think about it, man. I, I, I gave Jesus the study. It's like the most important room in the house. And he goes bothering me about what I'm doing in the dining room, and I finally gave him that. And then we had this big life lesson on the whole workroom thing, and, and then that living room thing. I mean, I've given him the whole place just about, come on, he's bothering me about a four-by-four four hall closet that nobody even cares about what's inside. I'm not going to give him the key, I thought to myself. Well, reading my thoughts as he often did, he started down the stairs, and he said out loud, well, if you think I'm going to live in this house with that smell, you're mistaken. I'll stay, but I'm moving out on the porch. Listen, when one comes to know the intimacy and fellowship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he who is altogether lovely, and then all of a sudden begins to sense him withdrawing his fellowship, that's the worst thing that can happen. Out loud, I said, no, Jesus, no, don't, don't do that. Don't move out on the porch. Okay, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the key. But, but, but you're going to have to take care of what's in that closet because I, I don't have the strength to do it. He said, if you'll authorize me to take care of that closet, I gladly will. So with a trembling hand, I passed Jesus the key. He took that key and he walked over to the closet. He unlocked it and he opened that door. He took out all the putrefying, rotting things inside and he threw them out. And he cleaned the closet and he painted it. And it was done in a second. I'm telling you, out of every room in the house that I dealt with Jesus in, I can honestly say there was no greater sense of victory than when I gave Jesus that closet and he gladly set me free. Well, a thought occurred to me. I wonder if, I wonder if, I wonder, and so I said it out loud, Lord, I wonder if there's any way that you could manage to take care of the whole house the way you just did that closet. He said, that's the question I've been waiting on you to ask me ever since I moved in. He said, see, you can't live the Christian life. I want to live it through you, but I've, you've got to authorize me on the whole property. So as fast as I could, I ran to the safe. I took out the title, the deed to the whole property. I ran and I fell at the feet of Jesus and I signed it over to Christ, lock, stock, and barrel. And this is what I said, Lord, it all belongs to you. Listen, I've been confused, but I think I've got it. Up to now... I've been the host, and you've been the guest. But from this day on, you're the master, and I'm your servant. And everything changed that day. Because Christ no longer merely had my heart as his home. Christ made himself at home 
in my heart. Paul is writing this. That is the essence of what he's praying. Not that just Jesus will live in there. He's already in there, Ephesian believers. I'm praying he'll live throughout there. What if 2021 looked like this? No door closed to Jesus. No room cut off from Jesus. No door locked to Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Has there been a room closed off to Jesus in your life? Will this prayer be answered as we stand at the threshold of a brand new year? That Jesus will be Lord in the living room? That you'd find time every single day to indulge the relationship that he bled to get with you? Would you, would, you, would you say, Jesus, here's the study. It's the control room of the house. I want even every thought that I have to be captive to the obedience of Jesus. Extending your pastor's message from last week into this application that, Lord, even the dining room, I want it to all be about Jesus, that the greatest will, the greatest pleasure I could pursue is not my own but that of you. And as I pursue yours, I'll be satisfied. Maybe even to say, Lord, I'm tired of attempting, I'm tired of burning out, I'm tired of striving and trying, and now I'll realize I'm not the workman, you're the workman. Would you take control of the workbench in my life? Or maybe even this, thank Jesus, he cares about the closets. Why? Because Satan will take a closet. He only wants a foothold. And when you say, Lord, even the closet, not just the big rooms, but every nook and cranny, it all belongs to you. Every door swung open, every lock unlocked, that it all belongs to Jesus. And the devil has nothing to leverage on your life. And as you stand in this new year to say, Lord Jesus, I'm opening every single room to you. Here's the question for us this morning. Number one, is he in there? Has there been a time in your life where you said yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord? And number two, if he's in there, is he at home there? Does he not just live within you, does he live throughout you? Every room, every closet, every nook, every cranny. You may say, Scott, I don't know if, I don't know if he's in there. I, I don't know that there's ever been a time in my life where I said yes to Jesus and made sure. I mean, man, I just doubt. Or maybe you're here today and you're like, man, I know Jesus Christ is not in my life, but I want him to be. If you're watching online and you want to ask Jesus into your heart, if you're in this room and you want to do that, here's what you need to know and understand. Number one, A, admit. Admit you're a sinner. Don't shuck and jive. Don't play the comparison game. Say, hey, standing in a silo, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. My sin is my own. It separates me from God. I admit that. And then B, believe. Believe not just in Him, even the demons believe in Him, but believe on Him, all the gravity of your faith, all the gravity of your trust, shifting off of yourself, off of your moral attempts, off of religious uh, uh, activities, off of churchianity, and entirely onto the, 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 the act and work of Jesus on the cross to pay for your sins, trusting Him alone. Believing to the point that you confess, see, you confess him as Savior, and you confess Him as Lord and King. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. If you have those ABCs in your heart this morning and you want to do that, would you say to Him right now, Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe you died and rose from the dead. I believe in your love and I believe in your justice and I believe Jesus is the only way. And I confess you as Savior and Lord of all, but specifically of my life. Come into my 
heart and live. And if you just did that and you, that is the essence of your prayer to God right now, asking Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, would you let us know? You say, how do I do that? Well, if you're in the room, if you're at Rossville, if you're watching online, would you just say, would you just text, I did, as one word, I did to 97,000? And when you send that text through, look, man, listen, the devil will beat you up in isolation. But the moment you reach out like that and you text, I did to 97,000, you, you connect with somebody, letting them know about that decision. That isolation is removed. Now there are people that know you by name. They're going to pray for you. They're going to encourage you. They're going to help you grow in Jesus. So would you do that today? I did to 97,000. Say, today is my one day. It's my day. I, I asked you. He went from living outside to living inside. And then if Jesus lives in your heart, as we stand here at the beginning of 2021, is there a door that needs to be opened to Jesus? Would you take a moment as we begin to close the service just to say, Lord, it's the dining room. Or Lord, it's the living room. Or Lord, it's the closet. Whatever that room is. And I'm sure that as I walk through those, perhaps the Holy Spirit tapped you on the heart and said, that's your room. That's your room. That's the one you don't let me in. That's the one where the door's locked. That's the one where the door's shut. No better time, no better place to open that door than right here, right now, on the first Sunday of a brand new year. Father, we love you. We thank you that you bother us about the wrong things and you reassure us about the right things, constantly wooing us, calling us, convicting us into a deeper walk with you. I pray for those that may have received Christ today that have invited you into their heart for the first time. I pray that they would grow in Jesus and they would take that step. For those that are already belonging to you, yet heard a challenge from the Apostle Paul from one verse in Ephesians, to let you live throughout us. May you not be relegated to a corner or a room or a section of a heart. Lord, I pray that you would be Lord and King over all and in all, through all, through the entire year ahead. We love you. We thank you. And we praise you. Jesus name. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week as we help equip you to apply God's word to your daily life. For the latest updates about what's happening around Peavine City, be sure to connect with us on social media. For more information about Peavine, to get in touch with us or check out one of our services, visit us at peavine.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>